Section 10 Of Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Developments by Francis Galton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 31 The Observed Order of Events there is nothing as yet observed in the order of events to make us doubt that the universe is bound together in space and time as a single entity, and there is a concurrence of many observed facts to induce us to accept that view. We may, therefore, not unreasonably profess faith in a common and mysterious whole, and of the laborious advance, under many restrictions, of that infinitely small part of it which falls under our observation, but which is in itself enormously large, and behind which lies the awful mystery of the origins of all existence. The conditions that direct the order of the whole of the living world around us are marked by their persistence in improving the birthright of successive generations. They determine how much cost of individual comfort that each plant and animal shall, on the general average, be endowed at its birth with more suitable natural faculties than those of its representative in the preceding generation. They ensure, in short, that the inborn qualities of the terrestrial tenantry shall become steadily better adapted to their homes and to their mutual needs. This effect, be it understood, is not only favourable to the animals who live long enough to become parents, but is also favourable to those who perish in earlier life, because even they are on the whole better off during their brief career than if they had been born still less adapted to the conditions of their existence. If we summon before our imagination in a single mighty host the whole number of living things from the earliest date at which terrestrial life can be deemed to have probably existed to the latest future of which we may think it can probably continue, and if we cease to dwell on the miscarriages of individual lives or of single generations, we shall plainly perceive that the actual tenantry of the world progresses in a direction that may in some sense be described as the greatest happiness of the greatest number. We also remark that while the motives by which individuals in the lowest stages are influenced are purely self-regarding, they broaden as evolution goes on. The word self ceases to be wholly personal, and begins to include subjects of affection and interest, and these become increasingly numerous as intelligence and depth of character develop, and as civilization extends. The sacrifice of the personal desire for repose to the performance of domestic and social duties is an everyday event with us, and other sacrifices of the smaller to the larger self are by no means uncommon. Life in general may be looked upon as a republic where the individuals are for the most part unconscious that while they are working for themselves, they are also working for the public good. We may freely confess ignorance of the outcome in the far future of that personal life which we each cling passionately in the joyous morning of our affections, but which, as these and other interests fail, does not seem so eminently desirable in itself. We know that organic life can hardly be expected to flourish on this earth of ours for so long a time as it has already existed, because the sun will, in all probability, have lost too much of its heat and light by then, and will have begun to grow dark and therefore cold, as other stars have done. The conditions of existence here, which are now apparently in their prime, will have become rigorous and increasingly so, and there will be retrogression towards lower types, until the simplest form of life shall have wholly disappeared from the ice-bound surface. The whole living world will then have waxed and waned like an individual life. Neither can we discover whether organisms here are capable of attaining the average development of organisms in other of the planets that are probably circling round most of the myriads of stars whose physical constitution, wherever it has yet been observed spectroscopically, 
does not differ much from that of our sun but we perceive around us a countless number of abortive seeds and germs we find out of any other group of a thousand men selected at random somehow crippled insane idiotic and otherwise born incurably imperfect in body or mind and it is possible that this world may rank among other worlds as one of these we are as yet understand nothing of the way in which our conscious selves are related to the separate lives of the billions of cells of which the body of each of us is composed we only know that the cells form a vast nation some members of which are always dying and others growing to supply their places and that the continual sequence of these multitudes of little lives has its outcome in the larger and conscious life of the man as a whole our part of the universe may possibly in some distant way be analogous to that of the cells in an organized body and our personalities may be the transient but essential elements of an immortal and cosmic mind our views on the object of life have to be framed so as not to be inconsistent with the observed facts from which these various possibilities are inferred it is safer that they should not exclude the possibilities themselves we must look on the slow progress of the order of evolution and the system of routine by which it has thus far advanced as due to antecedents and to inherent conditions of which we have not as yet the slightest conception it is difficult to withstand a suspicion that the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time may be four independent variables of a system that is neither space nor time but something else wholly unconceived by us our present enigma as to how a first cause could itself have been brought into existence how the tortoise of the fable that bears the elephant that bears the world is itself supported may be wholly due to our necessary mistranslation of the four or more variables of the universe limited by inherent conditions into the three unlimited variables of space and the one of time our ignorance of the goal and purport of human life and the mistrust we are apt to feel of the guidance of the spiritual sense on account of its proved readiness to accept illusions as realities warn us against deductive theories of conduct putting these then at least for the moment on to one side we find ourselves face to face with two great indisputable facts that everywhere force themselves on the attention and compel consideration the one is that the whole of the living world moves steadily and continuously towards the evolution of races that are progressively more and more adapted to their complicated mutual needs and to their external circumstances the other is that the process of evolution has been hitherto apparently carried out with what we should reckon our ways of carrying out projects great waste of opportunity and of life and with little if any consideration for individual mischance measured by our criterion of intelligence and mercy which consists in the achievement of results without waste of time or opportunity without unnecessary pain and with the equitable allowance for pure mistake the process of evolution on this earth so far as we can judge has been carried out neither with intelligence nor ruth but entirely through the routine of various sequences commonly called laws established or necessitated we know not how an incalculable amount of lower life has been certainly passed through before that human organization was attained of which we in our generation are for the time the holders and transmitters this is no mean heritage and i think it should be considered as a sacred trust but together with man intelligence of a sufficiently high order to produce great results appears as far as we can infer from the varied records of the prehistoric past to have first dawned upon the tenantry of the earth man has already shown his large power in the modifications he has made on the surface of the globe and the distribution of plants and animals he has cleared such vast regions of forest that his work that way in north america alone during the past half-century 
would be visible to an observer as far off as the moon. He is dug and drained. He has exterminated plants and animals that were mischievous to him. He has domesticated those that serve his purpose and transplanted them to great distances from their native places. Now that this new animal, man, finds himself somewhere in existence, endowed with little power and intelligence, he ought, I submit, to wake to a fuller knowledge of his relatively great position, and begin to assume a deliberate part in furthering the great work of evolution. He may infer the course it is bound to pursue from his observation of that which it has already followed, and he might devote his modicum of power, intelligence, and kindly feeling to render its future progress less slow and painful. Man has already furthered evolution very considerably, half unconsciously, and for his own personal advantages, but he has not yet risen to the conviction that it is his religious duty to do so deliberately and systematically. Chapter 32. Selection and Race The fact of an individual being naturally gifted with high qualities may be due either to his being an exceptionally good specimen of a poor race, or an average specimen of a high one. The difference of origin will betray itself in his descendants. They will revert towards the typical centre of their race, deteriorating in the first case, but not in the second. The two cases, though theoretically distinct, are confused in reality, owing to the frequency with which exceptional personal qualities connote the departure of the entire nature of the individual from his ancestral type, and the formation of a new strain having its own typical centre. It is hardly necessary to add that it is in this indirect way that natural selection improves a race the two events of selection and difference of race ought however to be carefully distinguished in broad practical considerations while the frequency of their concurrence is borne in mind and allowed for so long as a race remains radically the same the stringent selection of the best specimens to rear and breed from can never lead to any permanent result the attempt to raise a standard of such a race is like the labour of sisyphus in rolling his stone uphill let the effort be relaxed for a moment and the stone will roll back whenever a new typical centre appears it is as though there were a facet upon the lower surface of the stone on which it is capable of resting without rolling back it affords a temporary sticking point in the forward progress of evolution the causes that check the unlimited improvement of highly bred animals so long as the race remains unchanged are many and absolute in the first place there is an increasing delicacy of constitution the growing fineness of limb and structure and, after a few generations, in fragility. Overbred animals have little stamina. They resemble, in this respect, the weedy colts often reared from first-class racers. One can perhaps see, in a general way, why this should be so. Each individual is the outcome of a vast number of organic elements of the most various species, just as some nation might be the outcome of a vast number of castes of individuals each caste monopolising a special pursuit. Banish a number of the humbler castes, the bakers, the bricklayers, and the smiths, and the nation would soon come to grief. This is what is done in high breeding. Certain qualities are bred for, and the rest are diminished as far as possible, for they cannot be dispensed with entirely. The next difficulty lies in the diminished fertility of highly bred animals. It is not improbable that its cause is of the same character as that of the delicacy of their constitution. Together with infertilities combined, some degree of sexual indifference, or when passion is shown, is not unfrequently for some specimen of a coarser type. This is certainly the case with horses and dogs. It will be easily understood that these difficulties, which are so formidable in the case of plants and animals, 
which we can mate as we please and destroy when we please, would make the maintenance of a highly selected breed of men an impossibility. Whenever a low race is preserved under conditions of life that exact a high level of efficiency, it must be subjected to rigorous selection. The few best specimens of that race can alone be allowed to become parents, and not many of their descendants can be allowed to live. On the other hand, if a higher race be substituted for the below one, all this terrible misery disappears. The most merciful form of what I venture to call eugenics would consist in watching for the indications of superior strains and races, and in so favouring them that their progeny shall number and gradually replace that of the old one. Such strains are of no infrequent occurrence. It is easy to specify families who are characterised by strong resemblances, and whose features and character are usually prepotent over those of their wives or husbands in their joint offspring, and who are at the same time as prolific as the average of their class. These strains can be conveniently studied in the families of exiles, which for obvious reasons are easy to trace in their various branches. The debt that most countries owe to the race of men whom they receive from one another as immigrants, whether leaving their native country of their own free will, or as exiles on political or religious grounds, have been often pointed out, and may, I think, be accounted for as follows. The fact of a man leaving his compatriots, or so irritating them that they compel him to go, is fair evidence that either he, or they, or both, feel that his character is alien to theirs. Exiles are also on the whole men of considerable force of character. A quiet man would endure and succumb. He would not have energy to transplant himself or to become so conspicuous as to be an object of general attack. We may justly infer from this that exiles are on the whole men of exceptional and energetic natures, as especially from such men as these and new strains of race are likely to proceed. Chapter 33. Influence of Man Upon Race the influence of man upon the nature of his own race has already been very large, but it has not been intelligently directed, and has in many instances done great harm. Its action has been by invasions and migration of races, by war and massacre, by wholesale deportation of population, by emigration, and by many social customs which have a silent but widespread effect. There exists a sentiment, for the most part quite unreasonable, against the gradual extinction of an inferior race. It rests on some confusion between the race and the individual, and if the destruction of a race was equivalent to the destruction of a large number of men, it is nothing of the kind when the process of extinction works silently and slowly through the earlier marriage of members of the superior race, through their greater vitality, under equal stress, through their better chances of getting a livelihood, or through their prepotency in mixed marriages. That the members of an inferior class should dislike being elbowed out of the way is another matter, but it may be somewhat brutally argued that whenever two individuals struggle for a single place one must yield, and that there will be no more unhappiness on the whole. If the inferior yield to the superior, then conversely, whereas the world will be permanently enriched by the success of the superior, the conditions of happiness are, however, too complex to be disposed of by a priori argument. It is safest to appeal to observation. I think it could be easily shown that when the differences between the races is not so great as to divide them into obviously different classes, and where their language, education, and general interests are the same, the substitution may take place gradually without any unhappiness. Thus the movements of commerce have introduced fresh and vigorous blood into various parts of England. The newcomers have intermarried with the residents, and their characteristics have been prepotent in the descendants of the mixed marriages. I have referred in the earlier part of the book to the changes of type in 
the english nature that have occurred during the last few hundred years these have been affected so silently that we only know them by their results one of the most misleading of words is that of the aborigines its use dates from the time when the cosmogony was thought to be young and life to be a very recent appearance its usual meaning seems to be derived from the supposition that nations disseminated themselves like colonists from a common centre about four thousand years say one hundred and twenty generations ago and thenceforward occupied their lands undisturbed until the very recent historic period with which the narrator deals when some invading host drove out the aborigines this idyllic view of the march of events is contradicted by ancient sepulchral remains by language and by the habits of those modern barbarians whose history we know there are probably hardly any spots on the earth that have not within the last few thousand years been tenanted by very different races none hardly than have not been tenanted by very different tribes having the character of at least sub-races the absence of a criterion to distinguish between races and sub-races and our ethnological ignorance generally makes it impossible to offer more than a very offhand estimate of the average variety of races in the different countries of the world i have however endeavoured to form one which i give with much hesitation knowing how very little it is worth i had registered the usually recognised races inhabiting each of the upwards of twenty countries and who at the same time formed at least half per cent of the population it was i am perfectly aware a very rough proceeding so rough that the united kingdom i ignored the prehistoric types and accepted only the three headings of british low dutch and norman french again as regards india i registered as follows forest tribes numerous dravidian three principal divisions early aryan tartar numerous including afghans arab and lastly european on account of their political importance notwithstanding the fewness of their numbers proceeding in this off-hand way and after considering the results the broad conclusion to which i arrived was that on the average at least three different recognised races were to be found in early moderately sized districts on the earth's surface the materials were far too scanty to enable any idea to be formed of the rate of change in the relative numbers of the constituent races in each country and still less to estimate the secular changes of types in those races it may be well to take one or two examples of intermixture spain was occupied in earliest historic times by at least two races of whom we know very little it was afterwards colonized here and there by phoenicians in its southern ports and by greeks in its eastern in the third century b c it was invaded by the carthaginians who conquered and held a large part of it but were afterwards supplanted by the romans who ruled it more or less completely for seven hundred years it was invaded in the 5th century AD by a succession of German tribes and was finally completely overrun by the Visigoths who ruled it for more than 200 years. Then came the invasion of the Moors, who rapidly conquered the whole of the peninsula up to the mountains of Asturias, where the Goths still held their own, and whence they issued from time to time and ultimately recovered the country. The present population consists of the remnants of one or more tribes of ancient Iberians, of the still more ancient Basques, and of relics of all the invaders who have just been named is besides a notable proportion of gypsies and not a few jews this is obviously a most heterogeneous mixture but to fully appreciate the diversity of its origin the several elements should be traced farther back towards their sources thus the moors are principally descendants of arabs who flooded the northern provinces of africa in successive waves of emigration eastwards both before and after the higira partially combining with the berbers as they went and partially displacing them 
from the littoral districts and drive them to the oasis of the sahara whence they in their turn displaced the negro population whom they drove down to the soudan the gypsies according to sir henry rawlinson came from the indo-scathic tribes who inhabited the mouths of the indus and began to migrate northward from the fourth century onward they settled in the chaldean marshes assumed independence and defied the caliph in a d eight hundred and thirty one the grandson of harun al-rashid sent a large expedition against them which after slaughtering ten thousand deported the whole of the remainder first to baghdad and thence onwards to persia they continued unmanageable in their new home and were finally transplanted to the cilician frontier in asia minor and established there as a military colony to guard the passes of the taurus in a d nine hundred and sixty two the greeks having obtained some temporary successes drove the gypsies back more into the interior whence they gradually moved towards the hellespont under the pressure of the advancing seljukians during the twelfth and thirteenth centuries they then crossed over to europe and gradually overspread it whence they are now estimated to number more than three millions it must not be supposed that emigration on a large scale implies even a moderate degree of civilization among those who emigrate because the process has been frequently traced among the more barbarous tribes to say nothing of the evidence largely derived from ancient burial places my own impression of the races in south africa was one of a continuous state of ferment and change of the rapid development of some clan here and of the complete or almost complete suppression of another clan there the well-known history of the rise of the zulus and the destruction of their neighbours is a case in point in the country with which i myself was familiar the changes have been numerous and rapid in the preceding few years and there were undoubted signs of much more important substitutions of race in bygone times the facts were briefly these damara land was inhabited by pastoral tribes of the brown bantu race who were in continual war with various alternations of fortune and the several tribes had special characteristics that were readily appreciated by themselves on the tops of the escarped hills lived a fugitive black people speaking a vile dialect of hottentot and families of yellow bushmen were found in the lowlands wherever the country was unsuited for the pastoral demaras lastly the steadily encroaching namaquas a superior hottentot race lived on the edge of the district they had very much more civilization than the bushmen and more than the demaras and they contained a large infusion of dutch blood the interpretation of all this was obviously that the land had been tenanted a long time ago by negroes that an invasion of bushmen drove the negroes to the hills and that the supremacy of these lasted so long that the negroes lost their own language and acquired that of the bushmen then an invasion of the tribe of the bantu race supplanted the bushmen and the bantus after endless struggles amongst themselves were being pushed aside at the time i visited them by the incoming namaquas who themselves are a mixed race this is merely a sample of africa everywhere there are evidences of changing races the last three hundred or four hundred years say the last ten generations of mankind have witnessed changes of population on the largest scale by the extension of races long resident in europe to the temperate regions of asia africa america and australasia siberia was barely known to the russians of nine generations ago but since that time it has been continuously overspread by their colonists soldiers political exiles and transported criminals already some two-thirds of the population are slaves in south africa the settlement of the cape of good hope is barely six generations old yet during that time a curious and continuous series of changes has taken place 
resulting in the substitution of an alien population for the Hottentots in the south and the Bantus in the north. One third of it is white, consisting of Dutch, English, descendants of French Huguenot refugees, some Germans and Portuguese, and the remainder is a strange medley of Hottentot, Bantu, Malay, and Negro elements. In North Africa, Egypt has become infiltrated with Greeks, Italians, Frenchmen, and Englishmen during the last two generations, and Algeria with Frenchmen. In North America, the change has been most striking, from a sparse Indian population of hunters into that of the present inhabitants of the United States and Canada. The former of these, with its total of 50 million inhabitants, already contains more than 43 millions of whites, chiefly of English origin, that is, more of European blood, than is to be found in any one of the five great European kingdoms of England, France, Italy, Germany, and Austria, and less than that of Russia alone. The remainder are chiefly black, the descendants of slaves imported from Africa. In the Dominion of Canada, with its much smaller population of four millions, there has been a less but still a complete swamping of the previous Indian element by incoming whites. In South America, and thence upwards to Mexico inclusive, the population has been infiltrated in some parts and transformed in others by Spanish blood and by that of the Negroes whom they introduced, so that not one half of its population can be reckoned as of pure Indian descent. The West Indian Islands have had their population absolutely swept away since the time of the Spanish conquest, except in a few rare instances and African Negroes have been substituted for them. Australia and New Zealand tell much the same tale as Canada. A native population has been almost extinguished in the former and is swamped in the latter under the pressure of an immigrant population of Europeans, which is now twelve times as numerous as the Maoris. The time during which this great change has been effected is less than that covered by three generations. To this brief sketch of changes of population in very recent periods, I might add the wave of Arab admixture that has extended from Egypt and the northward provinces of Africa into the Sudan, and that of the yellow races of China, who have already made their industrial and social influence felt in many distant regions, and who bid fair hereafter, when certain their peculiar religious fancies shall have fallen to decay, to become one of the most effective of the colonizing nations, and who may, as I trust, extrude hereafter the coarse and lazy negro from at least the metalliferous regions of tropical Africa. It is clear from what has been said that men of former generations have exercised enormous influence over the human stock of the present day, and that the average humanity of the world now and in future years is and will be very different to what it would have been if the action of our forefathers had been different, the power and man of varying the future human stock vests a great responsibility in the hands of each fresh generation, which has not yet been recognised at its just importance, nor deliberately employed. It is foolish to fold the hands and to say that nothing can be done, inasmuch as social forces and self-interests are too strong to be resisted. They need not be resisted. They can be guided. It is one thing to check the course of a huge steam vessel by the shock of a sudden encounter when she is going at full speed in the wrong direction, another to cause her to change her course slowly and gently by a slight turn of the helm. Nay, a ship may be made to describe a half-circle, and to end by following a course exactly opposite to the first, without attracting the notice of the passengers. Chapter 34 Population Overpopulation and its intended miseries may not improbably become a more serious subject of consideration than it ever yet has been, owing to improved sanitation and consequent diminution of the mortality of children, and to the filling up the spare places of the earth which are still void and able to receive the overflow of Europe. 
There are no doubt conflicting possibilities which I need not stop to discuss. The check to overpopulation, mainly advocated by Malthus, is a prudential delay in the time of marriage, but the practice of such a doctrine would assuredly be limited, and if limited, it would be most prejudicial to the race, as I pointed out in Hereditary Genius, but may be permitted to do so again. The doctrine would only be followed by the prudent and self-denying. It would be neglected by the impulsive and self-seeking. Those whose race we especially want to have and leave few descendants, while those whose race we especially want to be quit of, would crowd the vacant space with their progeny, and the strain of population would thenceforward be just as pressing as before. There would have been a little relief during one or two generations, but no permanent increase of the general happiness, while the race of the nation would have deteriorated. The practical application of the doctrine of deferred marriage would therefore lead indirectly to most mischievous results that were overlooked owing to the neglect of considerations bearing on race. While criticising the main conclusion to which Malthus came, I must take the opportunity of paying my humble tribute of admiration to his great and original work, which seems to me like the rise of a morning star before a day of free social investigation. There is nothing whatever in his book that would be in the least offensive to this generation, but he wrote in advance of his time, and consequently roused virulent attacks, notably from his fellow clergymen, whose doctrinaire notions upon the paternal dispensation of the world were rudely shocked. The misery check, as Malthus called all those influences that are not prudential, is an ugly phrase not fully justified, and no doubt includes death through inadequate food and shelter, through pestilence from overcrowding, through war and the like, but it also includes many causes that do not deserve so hard a name. Population decays under conditions that cannot be charged to the presence or absence of misery, in the common sense of the word. There exists when native races disappear before the presence of the incoming white man, when, after making the fullest allowances for imported disease, for brandy drinking and other assignable causes, there is always a large residuum of effect not clearly accounted for. It is certainly not wholly due to misery, but rather to listlessness, due to discouragement and acting adversely in many ways. One notable result of dullness and apathy is to make a person unattractive to the opposite sex and to be unattracted by them. It is antagonistic to sexual affection, and the result is a diminution of offspring. There exists strong evidence that the decay of population in some parts of South America, under the irksome tyranny of the Jesuits, which crushed what little vivacity the people possessed, was due to this very cause. Might cannot fairly apply the term misery to apathy. I should rather say that strong affections restrained from marriage by prudential considerations more truly deserved that name. Chapter 35. Early and Late Marriages It is important to obtain a just idea of the relative effects of early and late marriages. I attempted this in Hereditary Genius, but I think the following is a better estimate. We are unhappily still deficient in collected data as regards the fertility of the upper and middle classes at different ages, but the facts collected by Dr. Matthews Duncan as regards the lower orders will serve our purpose approximately by furnishing the required ratios, though not the absolute values. The following are his results, from returns kept at the lying-in hospital of St. George in the Near East. A table is displayed on the page, with two columns, age of mother at her marriage and average fertility. The meaning of this table will be more clearly grasped after a little modification of its contents. We may consider the fertility of each group to refer to the medium age of that group, as by writing 17 instead of 15 to 19, 
and we may slightly smooth the figures, then we have oh, another table displayed on the page with two columns, age of mother and marriage, and approximate average fertility, which shows that the relative fertility of mothers married at the ages of 17, 22, 27, and 32, respectively, is as 6, 5, 4, and 3, approximately. The increase in population by a habit of early marriages is further augmented by the greater rapidity with which the generations follow each other. By the joint effect of these two causes, a large effect is in time produced. Let us compute a single example. Taking a group of 100 mothers married at the age of 20, whom we will designate as A, another group of 100 mothers married at the age of 29, whom we will call B. We shall find by interpolation that the fertility of A and B, respectively, would be about 8.2 and 5.4. We need not, however, regard their absolute fertility, but would differ in different classes of society, but will only consider the relative production of such female children as may live and become mothers, and we will suppose the number of such descendants in the first generation to be the same as that of A and B mothers together, namely 200, and the number of such children in the A and B classes, respectively, being in the proportion of 8.2 to 5.4, will be 115 and 85. We have next determined the average lengths of the A and B generations, which may be roughly done by basing it on the usual estimate of an average generation, irrespectively of sex, at a third of a century, or say of an average female generation at 31.5 years. We will further take 20 years as being 45 years earlier than the average time of marriage, and 29 years is 4.5 years later than it, so that the length of each generation of the A group will be 27 years, and that of the B group will be 36 years. All these suppositions appear to be perfectly fair and reasonable, while it may easily be shown that any other suppositions within the bounds of probability will lead to results of the same general order. The least common multiple of 27 and 36 is 108, at the end of which term of years A will have been multiplied four times over by the factor, and B three times over by the factor 0.85. The results are given in the following table. A table is displayed on the page of three columns descending, which include after number of years as below, and two columns split between the number of female descendants who themselves become mothers, with columns A and B. The general result is that the group B gradually disappears, and the group A more than supplants it. Hence, the races best fitted to occupy the land are encouraged to marry early. They will breed down the others in a very few generations. Chapter 36 Marks for Family Merit It may seem very reasonable to ask how the result proposed in the last paragraph is to be attained, and to add that the difficulty of carrying so laudable a proposal into effect lies wholly in the details, and therefore that until some working plan is suggested, the consideration of improving the human race is utopian. But this requirement is not altogether fair, because if a persuasion of the importance of any end takes possession of men's minds, sooner or later means are found by which that end is carried into effect. Some of the objections offered at first will be discovered to be sentimental, and of no real importance. The sentiment will change, and they will disappear. Others that are genuine are not met, but are in some way turned or eluded. And lastly, through the ingenuity of many minds directed for a long time towards the achievement of a common purpose, many happy ideas are sure to be hit upon that would not have occurred to a single individual. This being premised, it will suffice to faintly sketch out some sort of basis for eugenics. It being now an understanding that we are provisionally agreed, for the sake of argument, 
that the improvement of race is an object of first-class importance and that the popular feeling has been educated to regard it in that light the final object would be to devise means for favouring individuals who bore the signs of membership of a superior race the proximate aim would be to ascertain what those signs were and these we will consider first the indications of a superior breed are partially personal partially ancestral we need not trouble ourselves about the present part because full weight is already given to it in the competitive careers energy brain morale and health being recognized factors of success while there can hardly be a better evidence of a person being adapted to his circumstances than that afforded by success it is the ancestral part that is neglected and which we have yet to recognize at its just value a question that now continually arises is this a youth is a candidate for permanent employment his present personal qualifications are known but how will he turn out in later years the objections to competitive examinations are notorious and they give undue prominence to youths whose receptive faculties are quick and whose intellects are precocious they give no indication of the directions in which the health character and intellect of the youth will change through the development in their due course of ancestral tendencies that are latent in youth but will manifest themselves in after life examinations deal with the present not with the future although it is in the future of the youth that we are especially interested much of the needed guidance may be derived from his family history i cannot doubt if two youths were of equal personal merit of whom one belonged to a thriving and long-lived family and the other to a decaying and short-lived family that there could be any hesitation in saying that the chances were greater of the first-mentioned youth becoming the more valuable public servant of the two a thriving family may be sufficiently defined or inferred by the successive occupation of its several male members in the previous generation and of the two grandfathers these are painted facts attained by almost every youth which admit of being verified in his neighbourhood and tested in a satisfactory manner a healthy and long-lived family may be defined by the patent facts of ages of death the number and ages of living relatives within the degrees mentioned above all of which can be verified and attested a knowledge of the excellence of longevity in the family would testify to the stamina of the candidate and be an important addition to the knowledge of his present health in forecasting the probability of his performing a large measure of experienced work owing to the absence of data and the want of inquiry of the family antecedents those who fail and of those who succeed in life we are much more ignorant than we ought to be of their relative importance in connection with this i may mention some curious results published by mr f m holland of boston u s as the antecedent family history of persons who are reputed to be more moral than the average and of those who were the reverse he has been good enough to reply to questions that i sent to him concerning his criterion of mortality and other points connected with the statistics in a way that seems satisfactory and he has very obligingly furnished me with additional ms materials one of his conclusions was that morality is more often found among members of large families than among those of small ones it is reasonable to expect this would be the case owing to the internal discipline among members of large families and to the wholesome sustaining and restraining effects of family pride and family criticism members of small families are apt to be selfish and when the smallness of the family is due to the deaths of many of its members at early ages it is some evidence either of weakness of the family constitution or a deficiency of common sense or of affection on the part of the parents in not taking better care of them mr holland quotes in his letter to me a piece of advice by franklin to a young man in search of a wife to take one out of a bunch of sisters and a popular saying that kittens brought up with others make the best pets because they have learned to play without scratching sir william gull has remarked that 
those candidates for the Indian civil service who are members of large families are on the whole the strongest. Far be it from me to say that any scheme of marks for family merit would not require a great deal of preparatory consideration. Careful statistical inquiries have yet to be made into the family antecedents of public servants of mature age in connection with their place in examination lists at the earlier age when they first gained their appointments. This would be necessary in order to learn the amount of marks which should be assigned to various degrees of family merit. I have seen no peculiar difficulty in conducting such an inquiry. Indeed, now that competitive examinations have been in general use for many years, the time seems ripe for it. But of course, its conduct would require much confidential inquiry and a great deal of trouble in verifying returns. Still, it admits of being done, and if the results derived from different sources should confirm one another, they could be depended on. Let us now suppose that a way was seen for carrying some such idea as this into practice, and that family merit, however defined, was allowed to count, for however little in comparative examinations, the effect would be very great. It would show that ancestral qualities are of present current value. It would give an impetus to collecting family histories. It would open the eyes of every family and of society at large to the importance of marriage alliance with a good stock. It would introduce the subject of race into a permanent topic of consideration, which, on the supposition of its bona fide importance that has been assumed for the sake of argument, experience would show to be amply justified. Any act that first gives a guinea stamp to the sterling guinea's worth of natural nobility might set a great social avalanche in motion. Chapter 37 Endowments Endowments and bequests have been freely and largely made for various social purposes, and as a matter of history, they have frequently been made to portion girls in marriage. It so happens that the very day that I am writing this, I notice an account in the foreign newspapers, September 19, 1882, of an Italian who has bequeathed a sum to the Corporation of London to found small portions for three poor girls to be selected by lot. And again, a few weeks ago, I read also in the French papers of a trial, in reference to the money adjudged to the rosier of a certain village. In many cases in which individuals and states have portioned girls may be found in Malthus, it is therefore far from improbable that if the merits of good race become widely recognised and as indications were rendered more surely intelligible than they are now, that local endowments and perhaps adoptions might be made in favour of those of both sexes who showed evidences of high race and of being to prolific and thriving families. I cannot forecast their form that we may reckon with some assurance that in one way or another they would be made, and that the better races would be given a better chance of marrying early. A curious relic of the custom, which was universal three or four centuries ago, of entrusting education to celibate priests, forbade fellows of colleges to marry, under the penalty of losing their fellowships. It is as though the winning horses of races were rendered ineligible to become sires, which I need hardly say is the exact reverse of the practice. Races were established and endowed by Queen's Plates, and otherwise at vast expense for the purpose of discovering the swiftest horses, who were thenceforward exempted from labour and reserved for the sole purpose of propagating their species. The horses who do not win races, or who are not otherwise specially selected for their natural gifts, are prevented from becoming sires. Similarly, the mares who win races as fillies are not allowed to waste their strength in being ridden or driven, but are tended under sanitary conditions for the sole purpose of bearing offspring. It is better economy, in the long run, to use the best mares as breeders than as workers. The loss through their withdrawal from active service being more than recouped in the next generation through what is gained by their progeny. The college statutes to which I referred were very recently relaxed at Oxford, 
and have been just reformed at Cambridge. I am told that numerous marriages have ensured in consequence or are ensuring. In hereditary genius I showed that scholastic success runs strongly in families. Therefore, in all seriousness, I have no doubt that the number of Englishmen naturally endowed with the highest scholastic faculties will be sensibly increased in future generations by the repeal of these ancient statutes. The English race has yet to be explored, and their now unknown wealth of hereditary gifts recorded, that those who possess such a patrimony should know of it. The natural impulses of mankind would then be sufficient to ensure that such wealth should no more continue to be neglected than the existence of any other possession surely made known to man. Aristocracies seldom make alliances out of their order, except to gain wealth. Is it less to be expected than those who become aware that they are endowed with the power of transmuting valuable hereditary gifts should abstain from squandering their future children's patrimony by marrying persons of lower natural stamp? The social consideration that would attach itself to high races would, it may be hoped, partially neutralize a social cause that is now very adverse to the early marriages of the most gifted, namely the cost of living in culture and a refined society. A young man with a career before him commonly feels it would be an act of folly to hamper himself by too early a marriage. The doors of society that are freely opened to a bachelor are closed to a married couple with small means, unless they bear patent recommendations such as the public recognition of a natural nobility would give. The attitude of mind that I should expect to predominate amongst those who had undeniable claims to rank as members of an exceptionally gifted race would be akin to that of the modern possessors of ancestral property or hereditary rank. Such persons feel it a point of honour not to alienate the old place or make amiss alliances, and they are respected for their honest family pride. So a man of good race would shrink from spoiling it by lower marriage, and every one would sympathise with his sentiments. Chapter 38 Conclusion It remains to sketch and outline the principal conclusions to which we seem to be driven by the results of the various inquiries contained in this volume and by what we know on allied topics from the works of others. We cannot but recognise a vast variety of natural faculty useful and harmful in members of the same race, and much more in the human family at large, all of which tend to be transmitted by inheritance. Neither can we fail to observe that the faculties of men generally are unequal to the requirements of a high and growing civilization. This is principally owing to their entire ancestry having lived up to recent times under very uncivilized conditions, and to the somewhat capricious distribution in late times of inherited wealth, which affords various degrees of immunity from the usual selective agencies. In solution of the question of whether a continual improvement in education might not compensate for a stationary or even retrograde condition of natural gifts, I made inquiry into the life history of twins, which resulted in proving the vast preponderating effects of nature over nurture. The fact that the very foundation and outcome of the human mind is dependent on race, and that the qualities of races vary, and, therefore, that humanity taken as a whole is not fixed but variable, compels us to reconsider what may be the true place and function of man in the order of the world. I have examined this question freely from many points of view, because whatever may be the vehemence with which particular opinions are insisted upon, its solution is unquestionably doubtful. There is a wide and growing conviction among truth-seeking, earnest, humble-minded, and thoughtful men, both in this country and abroad, there are cosmic relations are by no means so clear and simple as they are popularly supposed to be, while the worthy and intelligent teachers of various creeds, who have strong persuasions on the character of those relations, do not concur in their several views. The results of the inquiries I have made into certain alleged forms of our relations with the unseen world do not, as far as they go, confirm the common doctrines. 
one for example on the objective efficiency of prayer was decidedly negative it showed that while contradicting the commonly expressed doctrine it concurred with the almost universal practical opinion of the present day another inquiry into vision showed that however ill explained they may still be they belong for the most part if not altogether to an order of phenomena which no one dreams in other cases of calling supernatural many investigations concur in showing the vast multiplicity of mental operations that are in simultaneous action of which only a minute part falls within the ken of consciousness and suggest that much of what passes as supernatural is due to one portion of our mind being contemplated by another portion of it as if it has been that of another person the term individuality is in fact a most misleading word i do not for a moment wish to imply that the few inquiries published in this volume exhaust the list of those that might be made for i distinctly hold the contrary but i refer to them in corroboration of the previous assertion that our relations with the unseen world are different to those we are commonly taught to believe in our doubt as to the character of our mysterious relations with the unseen ocean of actual and potential life by which we are surrounded the generally accepted fact of the solidarity of the universe that is of the intimate connections between distant parts that bind it together as a whole justifies us i think in looking upon ourselves as members of a vast system which in one of its aspects resembles a cosmic republic on the one hand we know that evolution has proceeded during an enormous time on this earth under so far as we can gather a system of rigorous causation with no economy of time or of instruments and with no show of speech ruth for those who may in pure ignorance have violated the conditions of life on the other hand while recognizing the awful mystery of conscious existence and the inscrutable background of evolution we find that as a foremost outcome of many and long birth throes intelligent and kindly man finds himself in being he knows how petty he is but he also perceives that he stands here on this particular earth at this particular time as the heir of untold ages and the van of circumstance he ought therefore i think to be less diffident than he is usually instructed to be and to rise to the conception that he has a considerable function to perform in the order of events and that his exertions are needed it seems to me that he should look upon himself more as a free man with power of shaping the course of future humanity and that he should look upon himself less as a subject of a despotic government in which case it would be his chief merit to depend wholly upon what had been regulated for him and to render abject obedience the question then arises as to the way in which man can assist in the order of events i reply by furthering the course of evolution he may use his intelligence to discover and expedite the changes that are necessary to adapt circumstance to race and race to circumstance and his kindly sympathy will urge him to effect them mercifully when we begin to inquire with some misgiving perhaps as to the evidence that man has presented power to influence the quality of future humanity we soon discover that his past influence in that direction has been very large indeed it has been exerted hitherto for other ends than that which is now contemplated such as for conquest or emigration also through social conditions whose effects upon race were imperfectly foreseen there can be no doubt that the hitherto unused means of his influence are all so numerous and great i have not cared to go much into detail concerning these but restricted myself to a few broad considerations as by showing how largely the balance of population becomes affected by the earlier marriages of some of its classes and by pointing out the great influence that endowments have had 
in checking the marriage of monks and scholars and therefore the at large influence they might be expected to have if they were directed not to thwart but to harmonize with natural inclination by promoting early marriages in the classes to be favored i also showed that a powerful influence might flow from a public recognition in the early life of the true value of the probability of future performance is based on the past performance of the ancestors of the child it is an element of forecast in addition to that of present personal merit which has yet to be appraised and recognized its recognition would attract assistance in various ways impossible now to specify to the young families of those who were most likely to stock the world with healthy moral intelligent and fair-natured citizens the stream of charity is not unlimited and it is requisite for the speedier evolution of a more perfect humanity than it should be distributed as to favour the best adapted races i have not spoken of the repression of the rest believing they would ensue indirectly as a matter of course but i may add that few would deserve better of their country than those who determined to live celibate lives through a reasonable conviction that the issue would probably be less fitted than the generality to play their part as citizens it would be easy to add to the number of possible agencies by which the evolution of a higher humanity might be furthered but it is premature to do so until the importance of attending to the improvement of our race shall have been so well established in the popular mind that a discussion of them would be likely to receive serious consideration it is highly necessary to insist on the certainty that our present imperfect knowledge of the limitations and conditions of hereditary transmission will be steadily added to but i would call attention to the serious want of adequate materials of study in the form of life histories it is fortunately the case that many of the rising medical practitioners of the foremost rank are become strongly impressed with the necessity of possessing them not only for the better knowledge of the theory of disease but for the personal advantage of their patients whom they now have to treat less appropriately than they otherwise would through ignorance of their hereditary tendencies and of their illnesses in past years the medical details of which are rarely remembered by the patient even if he knew them with the help of so powerful a personal motive for keeping life histories and of so influential a body as a medical profession to advocate its being done and to show how to do it there is considerable hope that the want of materials to which i have alluded will gradually be supplied to sum up in a few words the chief result of these inquiries has been to elicit the religious significance of the doctrine of evolution it suggests an alteration our mental attitude and imposes a new moral duty the new mental attitude is one of a greater sense of moral freedom responsibility and opportunity to the new duty which is supposed to be exercised concurrently with and not in opposition with the old ones upon which the social fabric depends is an endeavour to further evolution especially that of the human race end of section ten and end of inquiry into human faculty in its developments by francis galton recorded by leon harvey